We're coming now to the ministry of God's word. We'll be in John chapter 9. I think we're going to, I'm thinking about changing up something about how we do the, the ministry of the sermon. I, in, I'm teaching in Nepal uh, church history. We're, we're studying church history in America in our Sunday school class. And, and you can see how the lessons you learn are practical for, for our lives as we, we look at what God did in history. We learn that's what I'm, I'm, I'm working on with them. We're, for ne- right now, for example, early part of church history, uh, we're talking about the uh, fundamental doctrines like who is Jesus Christ? He is God and man. But uh, in, in that period, in the early period, one of the great church fathers was a, a man named, uh, they called Chrysostom or Chrysostom. Uh, that literally in Greek, he, he was a Greek pastor. And in Greek, that means golden mouth. I, I know that's the nickname you've often given me. Uh, it was because it was his, his great preaching. He was just he was just perhaps the greatest preacher in the world at that time, and he's one of a handful, two or three preachers that uh, uh, Spurgeon, for example, said was truly the great preachers of history. Well, there's a, an endorsement. In his church, they took an interesting approach. Uh, when he preached, he sat down at, at a little, kind of like a pulpit, but kind of like a desk and. Back in the Reformation era, they used to call the pulpit the um, the sacred desk. In other words, there's no altar here. There's no sacrifice. This is the book is here that's taught. So he would sit at that pulpit desk and preach. And in honor of God's word, the people would stand and listen. So we'll try that this morning. I'm going to go sit down. <laughs> Don't you know that made them pray for shorter sermons? <laughs> but it's interesting to see, you know, that was, a, that was their way and a valuable way of saying, he's a, he's a great preacher, but it's God's word. And, they, and, and them standing to recognize that's God's word. And that's, that's our reminder um, that, that it's God's word. What a grace it is that God gave us his word, his inerrant word, his trustworthy word. And I often think he, didn't, he gave us the cross. He gave us atonement. He gave us eternal life. And then that he gave us this word. It really is reason for thanksgiving. Well, our text this Lord's Day is we've, we've finished chapter 8. We spent so much time there, I think we recognize that's a very powerful and important chapter. We're continuing right on, and I think the event kind of continues right on into chapter 9. And this morning, we're going to consider chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, Verses 1 through 7. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, verse 1 says, Jesus passed by and he saw a man who was blind from birth. And 
One of the things we, we, we wrestle with in the Gospels is, how does this compare to what has just happened? Jesus has just had this, this interaction with the rabbis and, and back and forth. And, and, and finally saying, who, who are you saying you are? And, and are you greater than Abraham? You know, he said, you know, he who believes in me, uh, he, he, he'll, he'll not die. And they say, Abraham died, the prophets died. You're not greater than Abraham, are you? And then he made that statement, before Abraham was, I am. And with that, they leaned to pick up stones to throw at him. And it says he was literally, he was, was hidden. That's a passive verb. God hid him and he just left that angry crowd. Verse 9 reads as if we're just to continue the, their narrative. I'll start at the end of chapter 8, verse 59. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, as Jesus passed by, do you see how just... Um, I, sometimes we've seen where the break of between verses can be six months. This sounds like he left that temple area, and as he's leaving the temple... He saw a man who was blind from birth. So seasonally, it seems like we're still in that period right after the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and we've just finished the Feast of Tabernacles in our calendar. So it's this kind of time of year. And whether that, you know, October there in Israel, uh, that's around the time of their, one of their two rainy seasons. It can be cold. It can be wet. Sometimes it can be warm at this time of year, especially in Jerusalem. It's a little bit higher altitude. But it was a time like this. And, and it says he, the way it reads, like I said, just reads like the narrative continues. So that's when, after Sukkot, after the, the words with the rabbis and the attempted stoning, as he's leaving the temple. And so that's what I'm, I think the scene here is, that this is by one of the gates of the temple. Because what we're told about this man is that um, he was known in verse 8. We're not going to get there today. But they say, is this not he who sat and begged? So apparently this man was a regular. Now some of you drive, for example, into Dallas or something uh, in, in certain neighborhoods every day. And, and some of you recognize the panhandler that's at this corner or that corner. They're kind of regulars. And... And you'll see, if, if you go travel around sometimes, uh, maybe Europe or something, or someplace where there's a great cathedral, you'll often find at religious places, beggars know that's a great time to hit on someone. You know, they're, they're going to the temple to worship God and, and seek God's blessing and forgiveness and mercy. And one of the ways that the scripture speaks about that is to doing kindness to others, caring for the poor. And so the poor people would often be line the way along the, the, uh, uh, the, the gate to the temple. And so you'd see them there and they'd be asking for gifts. And he apparently was one of them. Uh, because he was born blind, he, there wasn't much he could do. And so he would beg. And he was kind of a regular. So my point is, as Jesus is leaving the temple, that's where this man is, seated in his regular position, asking for money. And he, so, and, and, and he just passed by and was there. We're told Jesus saw the man who was blind from birth. 
And apparently Jesus knew that. And you'll notice if you re- we've already read, the disciples said, you know, why was this man blind from birth? So one of the questions I ask is, and how did they know that? Now, it might be he was calling people, he was calling out and letting people blind from birth. And that would, that would strike you as um, a special case. This guy has a genuine need. He's, he's blind from birth. Uh, or maybe it was, um, he'd been there so long, everybody knew it. You know, even though the disciples and Jesus didn't live in Jerusalem, they had for the last week of the festival. And they may have been in and out. And, and somehow, though, it was known, this person, everybody knew. He was blind, and he'd always been blind. He had never seen in his life blind from birth. And his disciples asked Jesus, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, so picture the scene. Jesus has just left the temple. And the temple didn't, in that temple in John 8, you didn't see much about his disciples being with him. Apparently, they were there the whole time. And as they're leaving, I wonder if the disciples noticed Jesus looking over at the blind man. But they chose this time to say, Jesus, uh, why is he blind? And and the assumption is, um, it must be as a result of sin. See, it was a common thought that all sin, I mean, all illness, all suffering, was a direct cause of personal sin. Now, if we step back theologically, we would have to admit that all sin illness, I mean all suffering, illness and death is a result of sin. Adam and Eve's sin. This, in other words, we're not living in the Garden of Eden anymore. And so yes, we live in a sin-cursed world because of sin. But they took that further and said every illness, every mishap, every suffering is directly related to your personal sin or sins. Kind of reminds me of Job's. We often call them Job's friends. I've never been comfortable quite with that expression. You know, they're the ones that show up at when he's in this devastating time of loss and illness, and they they harangue him. And but what's their what's their theological argument? Job, you are suffering greatly. That's point one. Point two, we know. That all suffering is caused by personal sin. Logical conclusion. Therefore, you have sinned greatly. Repent. Of course, we know we got to read the first chapter of Job where God says to Satan, There's my choice servant. He doesn't say, Look at that wretch. Of course, Job sinned. We all do. But it even talked about his offering of sacrifices. But here's the point that theological premise. If you're suffering, it's because you deserve it. We're used to, you know, we're kind of the, a Hindu expression that's entered into our um, vocabulary these days, karma. Uh, karma, that's the idea that you, you're basically, karma is the idea, is it's payback. It's you're getting what you deserve from what you did in a previous life. Of course, as Christians, we don't believe there was a previous life. But, th- but again, that's the whole comment or concept. 
It's, it's part of human nature. There's no free lunch. You get what you deserve. And so the question is, okay, blindness is caused by sin, but if you're born blind? And so they're wrestling theologically. So Jesus, whose sin was it? Was it his or his parents' sin? In other words, did he sin before he was born? Actually, the rabbis record incidents where, uh, for example, there was one that's recorded where a woman uh, came before the judges to complain against her child uh, because, quote, it kicked on her unreasonably in the womb. And so there might be some women that would say, I think we're bordering on sin here. And so is that it? He kicked too hard. He was stubborn and rebellious. Was it his sin that caused him to be born blind? The rabbis also talk about maybe what the parents do. Their sin can cause blindness or, or sin or can cause illness or suffering. And so for they, 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 the rabbis discuss a, a, a famous and horrible apostate, one who horribly abandoned the Jewish faith. And they trace it back to the fact that one day his mother was passing through a pagan temple smelled what they were cooking, the food offered to idols, ate some of it, and that's why the child became an apostate. You see, you know, it, 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 and frankly, that logic kind of works, doesn't it? You get what you deserve. You're suffering greatly. Therefore, if you're suffering greatly, you must have done something really bad. Of course, the whole thing is, Sometimes God brings, sometimes we suffer because of sin. Sometimes it's a consequence of our sin. You drive drunk, you may get a ticket or you may get an accident. That's a consequence. Uh, sometimes we can be disciplined for our sin. And for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says people were getting sick and even dying because of the way they're abusing the Lord's table. So God can use all kinds of discipline. But to think that every blessing we enjoy, we earned, every suffering we experience, we earned, is missing the point. That's bad theology. And so his disciples were infected with that theology, and they're asking Jesus, so who did it? Who's at fault here? You know, sometimes... I, don't, I like asking questions. For example, when I'm teaching, I, I always welcome questions. It's, it helps us think through and discuss things. But sometimes we have to be careful. You may know someone that's going through a difficult time, and one of our tendencies is we like to go and say, and this is why you're going through that. This is why you've lost a loved one. This is why, you know... And, and we're, we're stepping in as if we know what God has ordained and why in heaven. But that's, you know, so asking why is not a bad thing, but we need to be careful. They're not even saying, Lord, you can heal, you've healed whole villages. What about this fellow? No, they're looking for, a, as, as if he's just not even a person, just sitting there. So, so why is he suffering? Whose fault is it? Well, Jesus answered, in verse uh, 3, Neither this man 
nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So he goes straight to the point and says, wrong assumption, wrong premise, wrong thinking. Neat, there is no sin behind this. Rather, it's the works that the works of God should be revealed in him. He's not being punished for his sin or his parents' sin. This is an opportunity for God's glory to be seen. Sometimes our suffering is simply an opportunity for God's glory. Or should I say, often our suffering is an opportunity for for the work of God to be seen in our lives. Or maybe I should say, whenever we are going through a difficult time, a hardship, physical, emotional, spiritual, it's an opportunity to display God's glory at work in our lives. As I was thinking this through and jotting down thoughts, one of the famous stories that comes to mind is Johnny Erickson Totter. Remember her, young teenager, dove into a narrow, some shallow water, broke her neck, and continues to experience the consequences. That wasn't a sin. It caused great suffering. But through that suffering, she has glorified God, whether it be through her wheelchair bound experiences, the pain that went with that, the cancers she's experienced, she has used that as an opportunity to glorify God. Many of you will still remember our own Keith Klaus. That wasn't sin that caused him to be, it was a disease that he had that kept him in a wheelchair and he lived to the glory of God. His, his uncomplaining, gracious response was to the glory of God. Many of you could be thinking of others, maybe in, in people you've had close experience with, or maybe just famous characters. But God can use, God, you know, it's, we can learn from this. Our suffering, our pain, whatever it may be, you know, we can maybe ask why, um, but the real issue is how will I, how can God be glorified through my life in this situation. And I can tell you again and again, I've seen that as people are at the, maybe going through a time of terrible illness in the hospital or in the final days of their life or maybe grieving over a loved one, but I've seen again and again where the Christian's response to a time of loss is a glowing testimony to a wandering world. Because you're responding differently than I would or everyone else I know. What is it about you? Open door. Can I share with you how God has given me the grace for this? Our our response can be so telling. I I think I may have told this story before, but years ago there was a a Christian Christian businessman who had a, a cleaning woman named Sophie. She was a believer. And uh, one time he asked of her, Sophie, why is it you are always so cheerful? You don't have much in life, but you're always cheerful. What's your secret? And she said, well, it's the way I read my Bible. And he said, well, I read my Bible too, but I don't find myself being cheerful like you are. And she said, you don't read it right. 
My Bible says glory in tribulation. G-L-O-R-Y does not spell growl. <laughs> he growled in tribulation, she gloried. But here's the point, people see that. And one of the things I've learned, especially in a, in a small life is, in a small town, I mean, people are watching. Your neighbors, your co-workers. And I've shared before one time, I was out pick, picking up my trash can. And the guy driving the dump truck jumped out and said, hey, you're a preacher, aren't you? I don't wear one of those collars. <laughs> and actually, it was my day off. I was in shorts and a T-shirt. How did he know? <laughs> well, he saw me over at the church. It's a small town, same route. But people know and watch. We ended up having some time in prayer together. Mr. Spurgeon um, said, speaking of Job 23.10, Job said, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Mr. Spurgeon says this, trials come from God. Job says, when he has tried me, he sees God in his afflictions. That's, that's one thing we need to immediately recognize. God is sovereign. His hand is in this. Now, if you think about it, well, he goes on. The devil actually wrought Job's trouble. But the Lord not only permitted it, he had a design in it. And if you can't remember, if you're foggy on that story, go back and read Job 1 and 2 and you'll get the background. But that's a wonderful balance. God's hand is sovereign. It, it, it's Satan that's doing the dirty work, but God is sovereign. And he has, a, he has control and design. And Mr. Spurgeon continues, Without the divine concurrence, none of his afflictions could have happened. It was God that tried Job, and it is God that tries us. No trouble comes to us without divine permission. So recognizing the sovereignty of God and looking how does he intend to glorify himself through me? I read of an interesting encounter. There were some Bible translators in um, Southeast Colombia in South America. You know how it is. They, they translate the scripture. They translate a portion. They work with locals. They go over it, um, read it back and forth. What does that mean? And they, you know, Because they first have to learn the language. It's, it's an extended process. After five years of labor, the Gospel of John was being finalized for publication. They gathered together, the, the group in the village, to hear the word of God. And the tribe sat there together, surrounded, uh, uh, listening to John, uh, the Gospel of John. Big, the, the son of the, the tribal chieftain was the one who was the great helper in the translation, so he was doing the reading. Beginning at John 9, 1, the son read about Jesus' encounter with the man born blind. When he got to the verse where Jesus says, this man was born blind, quote, in order that the works of God might be put on display, end quote, the old chief stood to his feet, requiring silence by his uplifted hand. He said, we must stop killing our babies. You see, their understanding in, in their pagan ways when an un, a child with any abnormality was born, they would practice what the Greeks called exposure. They would take it out and leave it in the, in, in the woods, in the jungle. And there, of course, the, the babies died. 
the chief was listening to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. This blindness was in order that the works of God might be put on display. And he thought, we're not displaying God's glory by doing that to our babies. If they come to us with some abnormality, whatever that might be, God intends to, to show his glory in that life. And he started, and, and, and because he was listening to God's word, it transformed their approach to those, those little babies. That wasn't something you, a problem you get rid of. This is a precious life that, where God wants to show his glory. Because he was probably thinking, born blind. I know we'd, 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 we handle that in a, we know how to handle that in our village. He's out of here. But then when he heard Jesus' response, God wants to glorify himself. That chief was listening to God's word and applying it to his situation. And he challenges each of us to do the same. Whatever your trial may be, or is, or will be, we may not know the why. But we know how God wants to use it for his glory. How will God be glorified? How? And the question then should not be why, whose fault, but rather, how will I glorify God in this? Well, in chapter 4, chapter 9, verse 4, the text goes on. Uh, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Now, some of your translations, if you're following along, it says we. This is one of those things where there's a, um, a textual variant, which means somewhere in the copying process, it, 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 two variants came up, two, two options come up, two different words in different texts, I or we. Both have very good, strong uh, te early textual re support. Um, and so I, I can't be dogmatic and say it's I or we. I'm inclined toward the I, but the we has actually a couple of the earliest of manuscripts of all. But the, the, but the, the principle will be the same. But Jesus is saying, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is, um, it's daytime, it's time for work. Now again, you have to think about in the ancient world. Um, you know, it was primarily an agricultural world. Um, but in other words, uh, they were utterly dependent for light upon the sun. You know, we're so used to 24-7. You know, you can drive down the freeway and you almost get blinded at 2 in the morning if you're out that late. Uh, they're out working on the freeway. They're doing it because they think, at least the traffic will be reduced. And they blind you with their lights, and you're thinking, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're working rather now than in the daytime and blocking traffic. But they can put out lights and work 24 hours a day in bright light. They didn't do that back then. When the sun went down, the workers went in. Pretty simple. And so what Jesus is saying, he's using that as a picture. It's daytime. Right now, while, while he is there, now is the opportunity for work. When it's nighttime, it's too late. And he's thinking about the fact, remember, he's there in Jerusalem. He's about six months out from the Passover in which he'll be killed. 
So it's kind of like when you're working sometimes, uh, sometimes I'll be out maybe mowing the lawn or weeding, whatever it might be, and, uh, and I'm watching my clock and I'm looking and it's starting to get dimmer and dimmer. And at some point, you know, if, if I let it get too much dimmer, I'm going to be chopping up Barb's plants and, and flowers, so I better stop. Once the light's gone, the labor stops. And so Jesus is using that, whether it's I or we, to remind us. Now, he's getting ready to die in six months, but the reality is for us, too. One day, our opportunity for service will be gone in this world. And so now is the time to glorify him. You know, a lot of times you talk to students, you know, you know what's kind of, what, what are your plans for life? And they, a lot of times it's, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and this, and then I'll serve the Lord, and then I'll serve the Lord, and then I'll serve the Lord. Next thing you know, you're talking to someone and say, well, when I retire, then I'll serve the Lord. And when I, no, now, today is the day to glorify God in your life. Right now, wherever we are, whoever we are. Because you don't know about tomorrow. Richard Baxter was a, a pastor, a famous pastor in the previous generations back in England. He was a, and, and he said this, I preach as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. He, t- he had the, in his mind, every time he went into the pulpit, this may be my last time. Every time you go out the, out the Lord, this may be your last time. And that doesn't matter who, how old or, or how young or how healthy you may be. We just do not know how dramatically... There was another one of these tragic shooting events, and one of the victims was just someone out for their regular jog. While the light is shining, is that the mo- in other words, in while we are here, while we have opportunity, now, now is the time to glorify God. But I think when he too, when he speaks of himself as the light of the world, isn't that appropriate for what he's about to do? The light is about to go on for this man sitting by the gate. By the way, this, much of this chapter is about and involves this man. He talks. His parents are there. He's, he talks to Jesus. He talks to Sanhedrin. I mean, this guy's pretty important. And we don't even know his name. Well, I am sure there's some church tradition that tells us exactly what his name is, who his parents were, but, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. No, that's where the way those traditions grow. But isn't that interesting? We keep calling him the blind man. Or the man. I think that's intentional. Because John wants to make sure our focus is not really on the blind man. And, and for God in our lives too, he wants the focus to really not be about us. But how will he be glorified? How will he be glorified? Well, verse 6, we read, When he had said these things, when Jesus had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. This is one of those strange verses, isn't it? And, and I've already been saying we shouldn't be asking why. I've got a lot of whys here. What, what is going on here? You know, like, notice, it, you, we, we, we've been told this, he walks, I'm, 
We're not told he's walking out the gate, but I'm assuming he's walking out of the gate. He sees the man there. The disciples ask questions about him. He talks to the disciple, and then he just, next thing you know, he's spitting on the ground and putting mud on this man's face, on his eyes. Did he talk to him? You know, it doesn't say he didn't. Uh, Later on, we'll see that um, he, he knows Jesus' name. Did, the, did he know what the Lord was doing? Okay, he hears these people talking, you know, especially, you know, when you're, when you're, when one sense is diminished, you, often the others are more heightened. When you can't see, often you hear and smell better. So he probably heard this discussion. And if they knew who he was, he, I'm guessing he knew who Jesus was. There were, you know, he, he's there at the gate. He's, 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 he's eavesdropping his whole life. He's listening to the conversations. And he knows all the talk about Jesus. Is he coming to the tent? Is he coming? Is he coming? Did you hear what he did? Did you hear what he said? Did you hear about that the woman? He's heard all this, and then he hears these guys, Rabbi, you know, and, and he knows you're talking about him. And then he heard the distinctive sound of the dispensing of saliva. He heard the spit of the Savior. And he felt, did, did Jesus say, now hold still? We're not told. Did he simply just hold still? And notice, it's fascinating, the word to describe him putting the spitty clay on his eyes is he anointed him. He anointed him. In passing, I'll just say, if you've read ahead in chapter 9, that the Sabbath issue will come up again. And one of the things that's forbidding, forbidden on the Sabbath is anointing. I remember one of my Orthodox friends one time, I, we were talking and I was visiting him on a Sabbath day in his dorm room. And, and he took a little bit of water and just wiped. He said, now you can't wash your face, but you can clear the, you know, the junk that's in your eyes sometimes in the morning. He said, you can use a little water to get that clear. Anointing forbidden. Jesus, it's like he's kneading. You know, he's making clay like a potter. Forbidden. He's anointing. I think he's very intentional in what he's doing. But we'll get to that on another sermon if we have another opportunity. Why is he using the dirt? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but does anyone here think that Jesus... Is Jesus thinking, well, I read a pharmacy book one time. This is the best thing for blind eyes. He doesn't need the dirt. He doesn't need the spit, the saliva, the expectorant, whatever makes you feel more proper. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need to touch him, remember? Um, I mean, he, he could just say, well, you go home. Your, your, your child's okay. He doesn't even need to be in the same city to, to do a healing. He doesn't need to touch sometimes it's just a word why is he doing the mud my answer to that would simply be i don't know <laughs> lots of people have wrestled they oh, it, it, it's to remind everybody of that's how god created man remember god used the dirt and made man there's no mention of saliva but is that it is he is it reminding of the you know god creative work of god um 
I think it's interesting. This is the second chapter where we've seen the Lord, can I say, playing with the dirt. Remember what the adulterous woman, he, while they're talking to him, he just twice, he goes, and, he, and, he, and he's doing, we don't know. Did he write? Did he draw? But he's moving around the dirt. Now here, once again, he's working in the dirt. Is there a, is there a connection here? I don't know. One thing I wonder is, 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 was this something the Lord was doing? One thing he may have been doing, to, so when the man was healed, Jesus wasn't actually there. And, and, and so the most natural thing will happen, then he'd go back to the temple. Uh, and, but, so maybe that was a way of having actually coming to sight in Jesus' absence. I don't know. But it caused the man to go and wash in the place called Siloam. And that's what he told them to do. He said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John tells us that means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus sent the man to sent. The one who was sent by his father sent the man to the pool called sent. I do think that's intentional. There's, there's an emphasis on sending. This pool Siloam is down low, kind of in the valley below the Temple Mount area. The water that fills it comes from the Gihon Spring, which is up uh, higher up between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. This is the water that comes through the Hezekiah Tunnel that was, that was channeled out underneath Jerusalem and that comes and fills this area. But the water, if you will, was sent to the pond, the pool, from the spring. So it's called the Scent Pool. And so he thinks it's appropriate that he was sent to the pool named Sent. I think it's a play on words, the fact that the Sent one sent him. If that makes sense. The man was told to go and wash. What did he do? The man obeyed. I mean, look how simple that word is. Jesus told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed. That's a good picture of the Christian life. Jesus said, do it, and he did it. Jesus said, go and wash, and he obeyed. He went and washed, and he saw. Now, it would be remarkable to have your sight back, but to see for the very first time. I, I, you know, I, just imagine the things that he has touched and, and, and seen, like maybe he'd been to that pool before. He seemed to know where to get, how to get to it. Now he gets to see it. and Imagine and, and looking up and seeing the temple because he's just down below where the temple would be looking up and seeing the top of the temple over the wall and seeing people and imagine and color. And it was instantaneous. And so he walked back to the temple. And again, I just imagine he wasn't in a hurry. He was probably just taking it all in. And he saw that path for the, that he'd walked on so many times for the first time. And he saw the temple. And how his heart must have thrilled. Just some thoughts as we look at this event. Our Lord has, I think John has some eight or nine different healings. There are several that are recorded throughout the Gospels. Um, some of them are just put into a list. He did this, he did... We're not, not all of them are laid out with the details that this man gets. But 
all, many of these healings are, are different. Some with a word, some with a touch, different kinds of diseases. But in essence, it's the same. God did it. Some by a word, some by a touch, some you know, by the disciples. But ultimately, the real issue is God did it. The miracles, in many ways, are a picture of salvation. Like, as we'll see in John chapter 11, when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, the dead is made alive. Uh, that's a picture of salvation. The, John Newton tells us, reminds us, I once was blind, but now I see. Our eyes being opened is a picture of salvation. And so this, this miracle is a picture of salvation. All the miracles are. And, and, and yet I said, they're different. Each different one is different, a little bit different. And that's one of the things I love about salvation. Now, there's a commonality. We're all saved by grace, by the grace of God through faith. But what gets us there, the root to that, and how that comes out is different in every case. And I think it's wonderful how God works with such variety. And that shouldn't surprise us. God has made many people, and everyone is, is different. God's made many a plant, so many so different. And so in, in coming to Christ, God works in wonderfully different ways. That's why it's so fascinating. Some you'll talk to, and, and it's a really different experience than yours. And that's fun. Some it's like, ah, that's exactly what I went through. The variety of God. But the, it's all the same. God did it. I think it's, if that's a picture, then I think there's something we can learn from this. In saving faith, we do not need to understand everything. Ours is to believe God's word and obey it. And so, yes, I think we need to know the truth. No truths. God sent his son into the world to die for our sin. You know, his, his substitutionary atonement and all those kind of things. You know, but some of those things, you know, like, do I have to understand the nature of the resurrection body to trust Christ as Savior? Do I, do I have to be clear on the timing of the rapture relative to the tribulation and kingdom? Well, yes, you do. No, you don't. In other words, there's a lot of things we don't have to understand. We do need to understand that we're lost and he's a Savior and that Christ is his provision. I remember hearing one very old preacher in the chapel one time said, you know, he said at, at, at the end of a long ministry saying, there's a lot about the gospel I still don't understand. But he said, you know, I don't understand how electricity works. But when I went into, go into a dark room, I still flip that little switch and I use the light. <laughs> and so here's a good reminder. He, he, he wouldn't, some of us would be saying, Lord, why the mud? What are you doing? Why should I do this? Remember when the leper came to Elijah for healing? And, he, and, and he, all by his messenger. Huh, just tell him to go and wash in the Jordan River. And, and, and he was, Jordan River? We have much better rivers in, in Syria. And then the guy's servant said, Master, if the, if, if the man of God says, go to the Jordan River, why don't you go to the Jordan River? And so this man shows simple faith. Jesus said, go and wash. And what does he do? He went and washed. He didn't say, well, you said, you said Siloam, but there's a nice little well right here. I'll just get some water. He did what the Lord told him. And trusting Christ, it's believing God's word and obeying it. 
believing God's word that tells us that I'm a sinner separated from God. I cannot, I cannot be good enough to earn his approval. But I can receive the gift of salvation and forgiveness by trusting in Christ as my Savior. So I'm going to obey him. I'm going to repent of my sin and trust in Christ. Again, I, I just, I'm startled by the fact we don't even know this man. I went through and I looked over several times through this chapter. No name. No name. Oh, God knows his name. But the focus is on the Lord, not us. The focus is on the Lord. It's not about me. It's not about you, really. We are, we're the lens through which God is seen. Again, the, too, the, the disciples had that problem we do. Let's talk about why. I think I know why you're suffering this. I think I know this. I think I know that. Instead of just saying, maybe simply, I'm sorry. I'll pray with you. How can I help? Because it strikes me, isn't it? The disciples didn't say, Lord, this guy looks like he could really use your help. Why don't you heal him? They wanted to make a theological debate out of it. And so this is just a reminder of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees your need. He knows your need. He saw when that child was born. He heard the pain in that child's parents' voices as they discovered, I don't think he can see. What will become of our child? The Lord knew all that. And with a heart of compassion and with great simplicity, he heals him. And the man's response, if the Lord says he wants to put mud in my eye, I'll let him put mud in my eye. If the Lord says I'm to go down to the pool of Siloam, no other place, and wash, then I'm going to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. That's the sign of a believer. We take God at his word and we obey it. And I think those are the two major themes I come from this passage. Take God at his word and obey it and recognize this. Whatever it is in your life right now, this is for God's glory. How will I glorify God in this opportunity. Father, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters. As you knew the needs of this blind man so intimately, you know the needs, the pains, the concerns of each one here. Father, I pray you would grant them grace for this time. And help each one of us, Father, to know how we may glorify you now. While the light is shining and we have opportunity. Father, for any who have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may the simple faith of this simple man speak to their heart. And may they recognize that they too need to do exactly what Jesus called, calls them to do. Turn from their sin to him. To come to him in faith 
and receive the gift of salvation through him as Savior. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give ourselves to you as vessels of your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.